0: All right, let's talk about T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Uh, Though, really, I probably don't need to do a lecture on this. It's so intuitively obvious to anyone reading it the first time that there's not really much to explain or unpack in a poem like this. Ahem. Now, as he so often does, Eliot begins this poem with an epigram. In this case, it's a quotation that says, For once... I myself saw with my own eyes the Sibyl at Cumae, hanging in a cage, and when the boys said to her, "Sibyl, what do you want?" she replied, "I want to die." Now the Sibyl at Cumae was uh, cursed with eternal life but not eternal youth, and she just, so she just wanted to die. Now the the idea of death therefore comes into this poem from actually before the very beginning this is a poem about uh about death it's also quite possibly a poem about rebirth but that's not uh, uh that's controversial it may not be um then there's a little dedication for Ezra Pound Il miglior Fabrio, the better maker uh Ezra Pound was an American poet who was uh very supportive of T S Eliot early in his career and he helped him edit The Wasteland. So originally, The Wasteland was over twice as long as it is now. So I think we can all thank Ezra Pound for his editing pen. And the title, of course, The Wasteland, refers to the the, the legend in uh, Arthurian literature of the, uh, the, the fisher king whose land was became a wasteland because he, the king, was wounded and he could only be cured by the Holy Grail. They had to go on a quest and find the Holy Grail. And Eliot was at this time, when he was writing this, was studying about the mythology and particularly the mythology of death and resurrection. of the. Uh, and we'll see, again, those themes come in here. But it begins, uh, death is already in here, we begin, the first section of five is the burial of the dead. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. All right, now that's, from the very beginning, we're, we're getting the kind of illusion game that T.S. Eliot loved to play. Uh, as you may or may not know, the opening lines of Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, Wander April with his sure sota, the drought of March hath pierced to the ruta. Uh, when April, with his sweet showers, has pierced the droughts of March to the root. Um, so, it, it, that's an image, and April typically is an image, of spring. This is, you know, the renewal, the rebirth, but here it becomes very different. April is the cruelest month. why it 's breeding lilacs out of the dead land, uh, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain so the 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 revitalization is uh, cruel it 's making it live again when its it's uh, it 's comfortable being a dead land, and you 're making us grow lilacs it's stirring things up uh memory and desire come come out when and it goes on winter kept us warm covering earth in forgetful snow feeding a little life with dried tubers so it was so much more peaceful when it was winter and the snow was was insulating us from life that's the that's the beginning image, and again, it turns on its head the the typical images of April as a time of wonderful rebirth, and we get as throughout this poem a series of dramatic monologues, kind of like the Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, except not a single voice throughout, but a whole collage of them. And this first verse paragraph we find out is a a German woman named Marie, uh, and she's talking about. Uh, about summer surprised us. Coming over the, the uh, Starnbergensee with a shower of rain. There's again the image of rain. We stopped in the colonnade. Uh, now, the reference to the, um, the Starnbergensee, uh, there was a famous uh, drowning, your footnote will tell you there. And death by drowning, death by water, as the poem says, is another recurrent theme. This spring rain... It causes not life but death, and Marie is remembering when she was children, when they were children. My cousin took me out on a sled, and I was frightened. He said, "Marie, Marie, hold on tight," and down we went in the mountains. There you feel free. I read much of the night and go south in the winter. Uh, so here we get this this kind of just little moment, and then of, uh, again, an interior monologue of this this woman thinking about her childhood. Um, it doesn't seem necessarily related to anything. And then the next verse paragraph, we get a completely different voice. What are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of the stony rubbish? Now, again, this is, it's kind of related because here we have the images of branches growing, uh, roots, that, fits in with those first images of April and the, and the, the water and, and rain and renewal. Uh, but it goes on, you know, Son of Man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter, the crickets, no relief, and the dry stone, no sound of water. So this is a kind of an apople- apocalyptic, prophetic voice, uh, a son of man. It sounds very biblical. And that, uh, that line, a heap of broken images, uh, which is in some ways a good description of this poem. It is a heap of broken, uh, scattered, fragmented images. And this image of a desert, there's the no sound of water. Uh, and he says, you know, I will show you fear in a handful of dust. Uh, so again, this is now we're not in in Germany on holiday and you know seeing where they go on vacation. Now we're out in the desert. And it's like this prophecy is being made, um, but it, all, it too has some remembrances. Remember at the very beginning of the poem, it says memory and desire are mingled together here. Uh, you gave me hyacinths first a year ago. They called me the hyacinth girl. Yet when we came back, late, from the Hyacinth garden, your arms full and your hair wet, I could not speak, and my eyes failed. I was neither living nor dead, and I knew nothing. Looking out in the heart of the light, the silence, eau on lire de mer. That is, the uh, uh water and uh, waste and empty is the sea. So another water image but here like the first in the first verse paragraph here there was a memory of childhood Uh, it was about something frightening here's a memory of childhood uh, that was uh, again his eyes failed this beautiful girl but it wasn't consummated Um, so we get again he's building up these correspondences and it's not quite clear what they all mean, but they do seem to be converging on some central themes and ideas about uh, about death, about uh, water, uh, about the regenerative and the destructive power of water, about relationships between men and women. Then the next, next we switch to a completely new frame of reference. And this is part of what is so disorienting about this poem as you never know really where you are. This next one is Madame uh, Susis, Susustris. She is a, a a clairvoyant, and she has a pack of cards, a, a, like a tarot deck, uh, though not the traditional one. Uh, uh, Eliot has changed some of the images for his purposes. And the first one is the drowned Phoenician sailor. So here again, we get drowning and the deadly power of water. And look what he does here. He says says, um, here she said, is, is your card, the drowned Phoenician sailor. And then in parentheses, those are pearls that were his eyes. Look. Now that line, those are pearls that were his eyes, is from Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. Uh, it's a song that the the, uh, the, the spirit Ariel sings uh, about uh, telling a man about his father whom he thinks is dead, but is not actually. He thinks his father went down in a shipwreck and has died. And so this song, you know, those are pearls that were his eyes. And it says, nothing of him doth fade, but to suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Uh, So the idea is that he's been down there in the water and the pearls in his eyes, he's kind of being transformed, his corpse transformed under the water. And Eliot does this a lot in this poem. I will not point out anywhere near all of them but a lot of these little lines and fragments, this heap of broken images, these fragments of references to other works of literature that bring in a whole another layer and a context and the more you the more well read you are the more of this literature you know the richer the poem and its references become and also is harder to keep track of um, but we have this, this next uh, these these images in the tarot deck, the uh, Belladonna, the Lady of the Rocks, um, which it sounds like Mona Lisa, uh, the one-eyed merchant, the hanged man, and her prophecy is, fear death by water. I see crowds of people walking around in a ring. Uh, so again, death by water, fear death by water. Then... The last section, the last verse paragraph in this first section, is yet another voice. Unreal City. Uh, And it turns out this is some version of London. We have London Bridge. A crowd flowed over London Bridge. Um, Again, images of water flowing. Um, And I had not thought death had undone so many. So it's a crowd of ghosts flowing over London Bridge. Uh, and he sees one in particular, uh, uh, Stetson, uh, you who were with me in the ship at Myle. At, uh, now, this is a classical reference, the Battle of Maile. Um, again, all of these things kind of coming in together. It seems like contemporary London. And then we get this reference to ancient Greek history. It says, the corpse you planted last year in your garden, has it begun to sprout? Will it bloom this year? And notice here, again, we have this, this images of growth and vegetation, April, uh, the spring rains. And now the idea of death, will, this, is that, will that corpse sprout? Uh, the idea of death and resurrection is here. All right, so you might think, what the hell is Eliot doing? Why is he changing up all of this? And part of it is he's trying to, he doesn't want this poem to be an easily accessible one. He doesn't want you to read it and think, oh, yeah, well, of course I get that. He wants you to have to engage with it and study it and figure it out. A lot of modernist literature makes that assumption, which is very different from older literature. Now, a lot of times when you read something like, uh, whether it's Charles Dickens or uh, William Shakespeare, those were popular writers at their time. We sometimes have to work to figure them out because they're distant from us in time. Uh, because the language and the references don't make sense to us. But Eliot made this difficult for people at his own time. I mean, the people who were reading this in the early 1920s would have also had a difficult time, maybe in some ways a more difficult time because they didn't have a, 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 a years of, of critical analysis to, to help them out. Um, he wants that. He wants you to kind of engage with this in a different way. And a lot of a lot of modernist literature does that. It wants kind of to make you into a detective who has to figure these things out. And I think it's it's sometimes helpful again to go with your general impressions. Uh, again, the impressions we're getting here are again of a wasteland. Uh, th- these fragments, these moments, uh, this uh, uh, prophetic utterances, the, the tarot, the, uh, the the ghosts on London Bridge. Uh, this is a, a kind of a nightmarish world that is being created here. Uh, it is, as, as the title suggests, a wasteland, uh, and, and there's no uh, death hangs over this, and the uh, fragmentation, uh, the, there's, no, uh, there's no closure or completion yet. Now, the next section of the poem is A Game of Chess. And that is itself another allusion to a a, a Renaissance play by Thomas Middleton. And this one also, we get yet another, uh, uh, another character, another location. And it begins, The chair she sat in like a burnished throne glowed on the marble with a glass held up by standards wrought with fruited vines from which a golden uh, cupidion peeped out. Another hid his eyes behind his wing. Uh, so those opening lines are another one, another allusion, this time to Shakespeare's play Antony and Cleopatra. In that play, there's a, a speech where uh, uh, one of Antony's friends tells the people back in Rome what it looked like when they first saw Cleopatra on her barge and it goes, the barge she sat in like a burnished throne burnt on the water. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sails and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. So it's this incredibly powerful image of, of beauty and sensuality uh, and here, it's describing an, an, another woman. We find out that uh, this is a contemporary woman who is waiting for her her lover, who is not coming. Uh, that passage from Shakespeare is a kind of a double allusion because it is a translation. It's a reworking of a translation of a Latin text. So there's an original Latin text that was translated into English. Shakespeare read that English version and put it into beautiful blank verse. So there's layers upon layers of that. And now Eliot has taken that and used used it as an allusion for this. So that's that's just one example of the kind of depth that uh, Eliot brings into this because of the range of references he has. Um, and look, it says that uh, the the lady is drowned, uh, it, the, the, the perfume drowned the sense of odors, stirred by the air that uh, freshened from the window. Uh, that's around line 90. Uh, and it says it was stirring the pattern on the coffered ceiling. Now, if you remember, at the very beginning of the poem, we had that uh, uh, image that the... Uh, April was stirring dull roots with spring rain so here again we get that stirred uh, uh, agitated called to action Uh, and this is another way that the poem is very dense and really rewards study there's a lot of internal repetition words and phrases and ideas that kind of echo within the poem as well as echoing outside of the poem to all of the uh, literary and cultural allusions that he's making and we get another one of these around line 99 when it says that you could see this picture of the change of Philomel. Now, Philomel, this is a, 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 from Ovid's Metamorphosis, was a, a woman who was raped by the king, and then because he didn't want anyone to tell uh, what he had done, he cut her tongue out. Uh, and so, but she was able to weave a tapestry that kind of showed the, the gave a story about what had happened to her, so they could find her the man who raped her and punish him. Uh, and then after that happened, she was transformed into a nightingale. Uh, so that's a, a an image and a story that comes up again. And notice it is also it's a, a it's a story of metamorphosis of change, but also. Of you know sexual brutality uh, and uh, you know pain it 's um, you know it 's not a nice story there aren 't a lot of nice stories that are referenced in the wasteland. It is about a wasteland it 's about a, uh, a a horrible, dangerous time and While the first half of this second section is about this wealthy, sophisticated, beautiful woman. Who's waiting for a, a, a man who never comes? Uh, he says, waiting and you know, just going to play a game of chess. It ends this, you know. Says we shall play a game of chess, pressing lidless eyes and waiting for a knock upon the door. So she ends there, just waiting. Um, unlike Philomel, uh, who you know, that was the male sexuality too aggressive, uh, raping her and mutilating her. This is male sexuality that is too passive. It doesn't, he doesn't even show up. She's waiting for him, and he's never going to show up. So the first half of it is, is that story. Then we get the second half, which is lower class, poor, takes place in a pub. And this woman is talking. These two women are talking. Uh, another dramatic monologue. And they're talking about a third woman uh this is this, again it's 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 complicated uh line 139 when Lil's husband got a uh, demobit i said i didn't mince my words i said to her myself hurry up please it's time now that's a uh that's that's last call in a british pub that's what they'll say hurry up please it's time and so uh, another thing that's striking about the wasteland is it's full of these very literary allusions and Shakespeare and classical mythology and, uh, you know, German quotations and all this kind of stuff, but it also uh, references popular culture, Uh, the kind of a common street language. Uh, The woman goes on, now Albert's come back and uh, make yourself, make yourself a bit, now Albert's come back, make yourself a bit smart. He'll want to know what you've done with that money he gave you to get you some teeth. He, uh, he did. I was there. Uh, you'll, uh, you'll have them all out, Lil, and get a nice set. He said, "I swear, I can't bear to look at you." So the, the uh, advice is that you know your, your, your husband is coming. Your boyfriend's coming back from the war. He's been demobid, demobilized. Um, so you want to, you know, use some of the money he spent you to get a new set of teeth. You know, he says he wants a good time, and if you don't give it to him, there's others will. Uh, so you know, you you gotta you gotta look nice and put out for him. Um, uh, again, this is a very different <laughs> in el- every way from the the the, the kind of tragic uh, story of the the first half of this section, but it's again about the uh, the lack of real connection here, romantic connection between men and women. They're they're isolated. Um, and it goes on around line 160. Uh, she says, uh, look at you pulling a long face. You know, you don't think You don't look so good. And Lil told her, it's them pills I took to bring it off, she said. She's had five already and nearly died of young George. The chemist said it would be all right, but I've never been the same. You are a proper fool, I said. Now, what she's talking about is an abortion. The the chemist gave her a, a, a pill to induce an abortion, uh, and that's ruined her health. Uh, and that fits in very much with the iconography of the wasteland. The, the Fisher King is wounded in the in the groin, in the loins, and here it seems that her this woman's uh, has been wounded in that way, in a, a female way rather than a male one. Um, and again, we get this repetition of hurry up, please, it's time, which is both a naturalistic thing, but also, you know, kind of reminds you, time is running out. You, you don't have forever. Um, and look at the very ending of, the, of this section. Hurry up, please, it's time. Hurry up, please, it's time. Good night, Bill. Good night, Lou. Good night, May. Good night. Ta-ta. Good night. Good night. Good night, ladies. Good night, sweet ladies. Good night. Good night. Um, Now, that is both kind of a double allusion because he's referencing a popular song, Good Night, ladies, at the time. Good night, ladies. Good night, ladies. Good night, ladies. We're going to leave you now. Uh, It's it's another song about men leaving women. But it also alludes to Hamlet with Ophelia, um, uh, you know, saying good good night to him. Uh, Ophelia is another victim who had death by water, who who drowned herself. Um, so all of these kinds of associations and connections can come up here in the poem. And a part of what Eliot wants you to do is to see this as a a, a picture. Of, again, of this contemporary wasteland that we're in. There, there's no connection between men and women. Everything is fragmentary. Everybody's trapped in their own little uh, piece or fragment of the culture. Now, in the next section, section three, the fire sermon, which is uh, from the Buddhist tradition, that's another thing about Eliot. He doesn't just take, a, you know, doesn't just kind of seem to have absorbed all of Western culture, but all of Eastern culture as well. Um, so we we get the fire sermon and almost immediately we get another one of these allusions to english literature sweet Thames run softly till i end my song that's from edmund spenser's poem the Proph- Prothalamian, which is a marriage song uh so we get these these you know another image of relationships of men and women here uh and another allusion that comes up here around line uh, one eighty-five. He says, "But at my back, in a cold blast, I hear the rattle of the bones, and and chuckles spread from ear to ear." Now, that's alluding to a carpe diem poem by Andrew Marvell to his coy mistress. Uh, he's saying the you know the reason that she should they should seize the day and and uh, love each other now. He says, at, but at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. Uh, now that winged chariot hurrying near and the, 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 the threat of death looming over them is there. It also, interestingly, that idea it fits in the previous section with hurry up, please, it's time. Um, and we get another allusion to uh, that, that same line in Marvell uh, about line 196, But at my back, from time to time, I hear the sounds of horns and motors, which shall bring Sweeney to Miss Porter in the spring. Now, part of the effect of this, you get the illusion he's not hearing, the the, the speakers in this poem are not hearing Time's winged chariot or something as, as dramatic and romantic as that. They're hearing, you know, a cold blast, the rattle of bones, uh, they're hearing the sound of horns and motors. Uh, the contemporary world is debased compared to the older world that uh, Eliot is alluding to, uh, and that's part of the the reason for his allusions. He wants to juxtapose the kind of pointlessness of the, this contemporary wasteland with the rich. Uh, emotional and beautiful world that you get in renaissance uh, love poetry look at the uh, verse paragraph that starts on line 207 unreal city uh, well we saw the unreal city in the first section so it's a repetition under the brown fog of a winter noon mr eugenides the smyrna merchant unshaven with a pocket full of currants CIF, London, documents at sight, asked me, in demotic French, to luncheon at the uh, the Cannon Street Hotel, followed by a weekend at the Metropole. All right, now, again, this is blending contemporary and classical. Mr. Eugenides, the, uh, the Smyrna Merchant, and if you remember in that first section, the, the tarot reading had the one-eyed merchant as one of the cards. Um but it's it 's got all that, but it 's also the can the Canon Street Hotel, the Metropole all of these very contemporary things also he 's got a pocket full of currents uh well that 's a a kind of a a homophone with currents like currents in the in the water uh, so the the water imagery comes back as well now in the next section, we get another character from classical mythology. Tiresias, he was the blind prophet. Uh, He was also uh, had been turned into a woman for a certain amount of time and then turned back into a man. So he had lived as both male and female. And look at the way that uh, Tiresias is described here. I, Tiresias, though blind, throbbing between two lives... Old man with wrinkled female breasts can see at the violent hour, the evening hour, that strives homeward and brings the sailor home from sea, the typist home at tea time. Now, Tiresias is having a, a prophetic vision uh, but it's not a prophetic vision of something from classical mythology. It's a contemporary, a typist, a secretary who's come home for tea time. Uh, not the the vision of brings the sailor home from sea, the, another water image in the poem. So you get this typist, brings the typist home, uh, clears her breakfast, lights her stove, and lays out food in tins. Out of the window perilously spread her drying combinations, that's her her undergarments, touched by the sun's last rays. On the divan are piled, at night, her bed, stockings, slippers, camisoles, and stays. I, Tiresias, old man with wrinkled dugs, perceived the same and foretold the rest. I, too, awaited the expected guest. He, the young man, carbuncular, arrives. So he sees this very mundane scene of this, this, this typist, this secretary, and she's at home. Uh, you know, you see her, or literally her dirty linen uh, on the bed. And the young man, carbuncular, full of pimples, arrives. A small house agent's clerk with one bold stare, one of the low on whom assurance sits as a silk hat, on a Bradford millionaire, the time is now propitious. As he guesses, the meal is ended; she is bored and tired. Endeavours to engage, endeavours to engage her in caresses, which still are unreproved, if undesired. Flushed and decided, he assaults at once. Exploring hands encounter no defence; his vanity requires no response, and makes a welcome of indifference. So here is a sexual union between these people, but she is, you know, bored and tired. She's not resisting him, but she's really not all that interested either. He doesn't really care that she's interested. Uh, You know, he he can, he can, uh, her indifference is enough welcome for him. So this is, you know, we've had, uh, the uh, images of men and women together before, the, the woman waiting for her man to come, uh, the the ladies in the pub talking about what you need to do to keep your man. Now we have the man and woman together, but it's unsatisfying as well. Um, because an I, Tiresias, have foresuffered all, enacted on this same divan or bed. I, who have sat by Thebes below the wall, and walked among the lowest of the dead, bestows one final patronizing kiss, and gropes his way, finding the stairs, unlit. So he kind of, you know, they have sex, and he leaves. Uh, And in the middle of that, we have Tiresias talking about being at Thebes. So again, this juxtaposition of contemporary and classical uh, Tiresias is not having a vision of something grand and, and, uh, wonderful. He's having a, a vision of, a vision of this kind of small, petty, sad encounter between this typist and this young man, Carbuncular. Uh, this is, this is the wasteland for, for Elliot. This is kind of how, how petty and small, uh, the world has become. And we see that the lady's reaction is that, well, now that's done and I'm glad it's over. um. So, you know, not exactly a great moment for her. Uh, then we get back, again. the poem keeps shifting back, to the the city of London. Uh, the music crept by me upon the waters. Uh, so we get the, the images of the water. And then around line 280, Elizabeth and Lester, beating oars, the stern was formed, a gilded shell, red and gold, the brisk swell, Rippled both shores. Southwest wind carried downstream the peal of bells, white towers. Uh, so here we get historical figures: Queen Elizabeth and the Earl of Leicester. Now they were believed uh, to have had a an affair, though nothing nothing came of it. They did not marry, uh, and so here again it fits into these these fruitless and frustrating relationships between men and women and relationships in general in this poem. Look at the line uh, 296. My feet are at Moorgate and my heart under my feet. After the event, he wept. He promised a new start. I made no comment. What should I resent? Uh, So again, we get a, a sexual union here but one that doesn't lead to anything in uh, any, any real doesn't seem to come out of any love doesn't lead to any uh relationship um, you know he's promising a, a new start she has no comment to that now sometimes in fact, most of the time it it can be tricky to figure out who is speaking that speakers change and shift uh, Is this Elizabeth saying that? Is this a contemporary woman and in some sense, it doesn't matter. Uh, Eliot himself said that every woman in the poem is the same woman. All the all the female characters are, in, in a sense, uh, the same theme, the same story, the same sadness. All the male characters too. And one of the significance of Tiresias is that he is both male and female. Uh, he is both of them. It's, it's in, he embodies all of these voices and sees all of these visions. So whoever says that line, it fits in thematically with the with the rest of the poem. Um, and the next section we get death by water. Now that obviously is a big theme, and we get uh, Phlibus the Phoenician. Remember the ph- the drowned Phoenician sailor was one of the tarot cards that you got in the tarot reading in the first section of the poem. A fortnight dead, forgot the cry of gulls. And the and the deep sea swell, and the profit and loss, a current under sea, picked his bones in whispers. Now that echoes with several other things. We've t- references to the sea and sailors, uh, the the currents that the the merchant had, and uh, picked his bones in whispers. Uh, it, in, in a way, alludes to that line from the tempest, those are pearls that were his eyes, the, the, the water transforming the, the corpse. He says, as he rose and fell, he passed the stages of his age and youth, entering the whirlpool. Gentile or Jew, oh, you who turn the wheel and look to windward, consider Phlebas, who was once handsome and tall as you. So this drowned Phoenician sailor uh, becomes a, a a a reminder of death. It says, We're we're on this voyage, but think about Phlebas. He was as handsome and tall as you are now, and he is dead. Uh, so the poem keeps you know, the uh both romance and death come again and again into this poem. Now in the final section of the poem, What the Thunder Said, uh we get this well, it begins, after the torchlight red on sweaty faces, after the frosty silence in the gardens, after the agony in stony places, the shouting and the crying, prison and palace and reverberation of thunder, of spring over distant mountains, he who was living is now dead. We who were living are now dying with a little patience. Now, this is, seems like a, an image, a biblical image it's after the uh, the the betrayal. We've got the Garden of Gethsemane, the the stony places, the agony in stony places, the crucifixion, and now he who is living is now dead. Now this comes before the resurrection. And one way of thinking about the wasteland is it's in that moment of death before any hope of resurrection. Uh, and then the poem goes on, and it picks up that. Uh, that prophetic voice that we got in early in the poem, here is no water, but only rock. It's describing this desert area. It says, uh, if there were water, we should stop and drink. It says, but dry, sterile thunder, there's no, nothing but dry, sterile thunder without rain. There is not even solitude in the mountains, but red, sullen faces sneer and snarl from doors of mud-cracked houses. So it, again, it's completely barren, completely waterless. Uh, you get, get this sterile thunder, that is, it has no rain. Uh, you can't, you're not even alone, at least there's some solitude in the desert, but not here. There, there, but there's no and it says talks about what we would do um, if there were rock. And also water and water, a spring, a pool among the rock. If there were the sound of water only, not the cicadas and dry grass singing, but sound of water over a rock where the hermit thrush sings in the pine trees. Drip, drop, drip, drop, 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 drop. But there is no water. So you know, we would do all this if there's water, but there isn't any. Um, and... So it goes on, it goes on at great length talking about this uh, and these images of, uh, again, of desert and futility. And the final movement of the poem uh, moves to the Ganges. Uh, this is around line 396. Ganja was sudden and the limp leaves waited for rain. So now we're, we're still waiting for rain, but it is near a river. And then the thunder speaks. This is, again, Eastern uh, references he's making. Uh, The the words of the thunder and the way that they are translated in the Hindu tradition. And there are three reiterations of this. Uh, Da, data. What have we given? Uh, So one of the, the meanings of the thunder traditionally is to to give. Uh, to be, to be giving, to give of yourself. The next one is "Da, uh, Dada Havam." I have heard the the key turn in the door once and turn once only. We think of the key, each in his prison, thinking of the key, each confirms a prison. Only at nightfall, ethereal rumors, reeve for a moment, uh, a broken Coriolanus. So, the, the this meaning of of the thunder is for mercy, and this one doesn't seem available. We don't. We're not. Uh, we, we we don't give. We don't have mercy, and we don't have mercy because we are each locked in his own prison, and all of this kind of cacophony and collage of different voices in the poem uh, adds up to that. Each one is kind of isolated and on their own, and there there's no connections that are made. So there's no. The chance for mercy. And the final da is dam, yata that is self-control. The boat responded gaily to the hand, expert with sail and oar, the sea was calm. Your heart would have responded gaily when invited, beating obedient to controlling hands. I sat upon the shore, fishing, with the arid plain behind me, shall I at least set my hand in order, hand, lands in order? So here the the ima- again, an image of self control, steering the boat, uh, being able to control it, and fishing. Uh, we get the the image of the Fisher King, the images of water uh, coming in, and so here is a a religious uh, tradition, and how. Contemporary life fails to meet up to it. We we don't have the, the self-control, the mercy, the spirit of giving that might get us out of this wasteland. And so the very final uh, stanza of the poem, London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. Now that's a simple child's nursery rhyme, but in this context, it becomes very ominous. Uh, if we, we've seen London Bridge before, and it was covered with ghosts. Then he gives you a couple of quotations uh, from you know different different languages, different uh, literary traditions. Uh, the first one reads as: "He hid himself in the fire which refines them," and then. Uh, when shall I be as the swallow, oh swallow swallow uh now again, the fire and water the, you know what the what the fire said uh the death by water um all of these uh uh kind of come in here, and the swallow also fits with the image of Philomel who is turned into a bird um and then the next quotation uh, is the prince. Of uh, Aquitaine in the ruined tower, and then these fragments I have shored up against my ruins. Uh, and these fragments are again these these broke, heap of broken images. These fragments of the poem. That's all he has to kind of 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 give him hope in this wasteland. And then we get another quotation, an allusion to uh, a. a, a elizabethan play a uh, revenge tragedy it says why then he i'll fit you Hieronymus mad again uh that's the a, a man who uh, went crazy and you know while he was seeking revenge it's kind of the an earlier version of hamlet um, so it comes into that and then we get the 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 hindu uh words repeated Data. Damyata. and then Shanta, Shanta, Shanta. Those are the last three words of the poem, the peace that passes understanding. So it ends, uh, you know, what does that all mean? Well, I'll be honest, I don't know. Uh, but I think the mood and the tone of it are very clear. Eliot is talking about a world that is fragmented, that is confusing, very much the way that... Um, uh, we saw that Marlowe in uh, Heart of Darkness, he couldn't explain things. He, he Everything was foggy. He couldn't quite grasp this this crazy world around him. And The, the Wasteland very self-consciously presents itself as a portrait of the fragmentation and uh, incomprehensibility of the modern world and its need for... Redemption for rejuvenation, but there's, there's a just the hint of that, but it's not a strongly hinted possibility. It's not clear. Oh, well, don't worry. Everything will be okay. You know, the, uh, the, uh, there'll be a resurrection and everything will be great. No, this is a world that seems mired in, in a death that's not going to have a resurrection. Uh, so uh, again, that's a very bleak picture that it's painting. Uh, and they're kind of, I, th- I think, reasons in the early 20th century that people were feeling that kind of bleakness. Uh, but Eliot certainly captures that. And stylistically, he he captures it in the way he writes. Uh, he could have written a poem on the same theme in a much more straightforward way, but it wouldn't have embodied the theme the way that this does, the way the fragmentary language and references Give, give the reader the experience of being in this chaotic wasteland. All right. Well, I will leave uh, the wasteland there for now, though. Uh, it, it could repay a great deal more study if you, if you are interested in that. Uh, for next time, we're going to start uh, Virginia Woolf's novel, Mrs. Dalloway. Now this is a novel that uh, Mrs. Dalloway is not surprisingly the main character of the novel, and I want you to look at how is she presented. A lot of this book is written in what is called, I think, misleadingly, stream of consciousness. That is, it's tracing the the thoughts and feelings of the characters as they're going through their day. In fact, Mrs. Dalloway is the story of a single day. Uh, it, 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 the whole book takes place in uh, in uh, uh, one one day. And Mrs. Dalloway, as she's going about her daily routine, we get her inner thoughts and the inner thoughts of several other characters. And one of the things I want you to look at is how is Mrs. Dalloway different from a character like Septimus? He's the other major character in the book. How do they see and respond and think differently differently? Uh, and the book will uh, show us that. This is, uh, again, it's a stream of consciousness, so you have to kind of pay attention to who is uh, whose head are we in at this moment. Um, also, you might think about how this is, is different from a novel like Jane Austen would write with uh, Pride and Prejudice. Uh, we'll be talking about that as well. Now, one problem of, of studying Mrs. Dalloway, is that it has no chapters. It is it is a continuous stream of narrative. So I've just given you the page numbers uh, for the first, uh, first lecture. I want to talk about pages 2156 through 2171. All right. Well, thank you for your attention, and I will talk to you about the beginning of Mrs. Dalloway next time.